Well, the gift of memory from God is a, a, a really wonderful thing. One of my earliest recollections of Christmas Eve in 1966, we bundled up, headed down to my Grandpa and Grandma Hare's house. They lived at the end of Evergreen Circle. That's the Peoria neighborhood where I grew up. And all of my aunts and uncles and cousins were there. And with the distorted perspective of a 10-year-old, it seemed to me like there were a thousand people in that house. And uh, we got to eat all kinds of food and Christmas treats. And back in those days, the special deal for the evening was we got to drink soda pop. And then it was time for the gift exchange. We all stumbled down into their basement, and the ping-pong table in their basement was uh, like literally transformed into a glistening mound of carefully wrapped presents. And uh, you got to draw a number. The guys got a guy's gift. The girls got a girl's gift. And you got to actually pick one of those irresistible packages. And on my turn, I carefully selected a small and inconspicuous gift, remembering well that my parents had taught me good things come in small groups. I mean small packages. <laughs> and then I carefully peeled off the wrapping paper to discover a box of Lifesaver candy. Ten rolls, to be exact, one of diff uh, ten different kinds. And you've never seen Happy like you saw a little crew-cut Happy Benny that night on Christmas Eve and 1966. And since that day, the memory of that gift brings incredible joy. And no doubt, all of you can remember at some point a special gift, a simple token, or a touch of love in the holiday season that brought you special joy. Well, last week we launched our three-week Advent series of sermons that we're calling God's Greatest Christmas Gifts, The Greatest Christmas Gifts. Now, the word Advent simply means coming or arrival. And um, in the church, it refers to the four Sundays preceding Christmas where we anticipate the coming or the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior. And for about a thousand years now, churches have celebrated this tradition in, in many different ways to keep our focus on the right things in, in, in this otherwise distracting time. And last week, we learned that the, the greatest gift uh, one of the greatest gifts was real hope that things don't always need to stay the way they are. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the gift of real love. We'll conclude on Christmas Eve together as we celebrate the gift of real life. Four o'clock candlelight service. Uh, and I might mention parenthetically that we've printed up invitations for you to invite your family or friends, and you can pick them up at Guest Central on the way out. They're on the table there, just an invite that you might want to give to your family or friends or coworkers or classmates. And this morning, we're going to discover that the Advent gift of real joy is that Jesus changes everything. So let's pray as we welcome God to be among us today. Lord, we're humbled and grateful about your goodness in our life. We, we pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. We bless your name, Lord, because of the life that comes in your kingdom through your death and resurrection. We thank you for the gifts of hope and joy and love and life that come through Jesus. We bless your name for the gift of the Holy Spirit the down payment that everything you promise us in the book is going to eventually come to pass. We bless your name for health and soundness of mind. We bless your name for this church family. We bless your name for the ways in which you're moving in our life. And Lord, we bless your name for the security that you provide of a certain future 
with you. We now pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done among us here in this room and the vineyard kids next door and as we share greetings and cups of coffee in the commons. Lord, just bring your kingdom in the way you know that we so desperately need in your name. Amen. Well, everybody wants Christmas to be a happy and joyful time, right? Something we all want. You know, many of us are... Uh, in search of the perfect Christmas. You know, a layer of fresh white powder, but not enough to ice up the roads. We want a really big Christmas bonus that we weren't expecting. Uh, a, uh, a group of kids that are polite and respectful and grateful for their presence. Relatives that smile and actually get along for a full day. Uh, maybe a great football game on TV. And if we could, we'd probably pass a law. You know, that on Christmas... Uh, no one would get stranded at O'Hare. No one would get the flu. Uh, that uh, every shirt and pair of jeans would be just the right size and the right color. That the car locks wouldn't freeze. And that every baby would take a nap right on schedule, wake up quiet and, and joyful, and that Dad would change all the diapers. <laughs> but it rarely happens all that, that way, does it? Rarely. It, it doesn't happen that way. The weather turns nasty. Somebody drinks too much and then says something nasty, or you show up late, or that perfect present that you, you purchased with great thoughtfulness for that perfect someone got kind of a, oh, reaction. Um, you know, your schedule is so full from the concerts and the, the recitals and the programs, the, the cooking and the baking and, and the packing to travel, the, uh, cleaning and preparing the house and trimming the tree and decorating that, you know, you just end up plum exhausted. And you roll into the eve of Christmas rather tired and, and worn out. And then you realize that that hot spot you feel back there is actually the heat from your Visa card on the December overload. You know, <laughs> Millions of people actually get to Christmas Eve with a little bit of a letdown. Uh, in fact, for many people, in many ways... The holiday season is not too joyful nor happy. It's one of the most difficult times of the whole year. Maybe painful memories. Uh, maybe of a, of a loved one just recently passed. Maybe for you it's a, a sense of shame or regret. It's, it might be the temptation to give up your hard-earned sobriety. Maybe it's depression or the complications that divorce or death has, has meant for your family. Uh, it's not good news of great joy. But you know what? The very first Christmas was actually anything but smooth. No jingle bells, no festive parties, no presents with nice satin wrapped bows. Uh, it was kind of a mess all the way around when you really just get right down to it. Uh, now, now, our Christmas cards are always clean and antiseptic, aren't they? You know, you have pristine snow-covered trees. You have picture-perfect families with crest-white smiles sitting by a crackling fire sharing the love of the holidays. You have houses that are decorated in the better homes and gardens or Martha Stewart fashion. That's what our cards look like. I like what Philip Yancey in his book, The, the Jesus I Never Knew, decries. He says it this way, We observe a mellow, domesticated holiday purged of any hint of scandal. But here's Joseph and Mary. 
a young, engaged Jewish couple, confused, not quite so sure what to make of this unplanned pregnancy. The scandal makes the headlines in the Nazareth News. You know, small towns don't treat kindly small uh, uh, young girls who get knocked up before their wedding. So it was a scandal. Uh, the IRS had ordered everybody return to their ancestral hometown to pay a special head tax. And so it meant for them that they had to travel 75 miles, either on foot or on a donkey, uh, from uh, their, their, the town in which they were living, Nazareth in, in Galilee, to Bethlehem in Judea. And they arrived there exhausted. She's irritated and no doubt frightened, and he's nervous. All the hotels and motels were already jammed because of the census. No vacancy signs were plastered everywhere. And this is not how you envision your first uh, go-around in childbirth. At least that's what I'm told. You know, you, you have, uh, you're, you're away from your home. You, you don't have your doctor. Your midwife isn't there. Your mom's not there. Your nursery that's been carefully prepared isn't there. And so now the desperate father-to-be finds uh, a shed that's normally reserved for the animals and probably is mumbling something like this, Honey, I, I'm really sorry. I, I, I really screwed up. I should have listened to you and called ahead for reservations, but I didn't. Uh, I, I, I'm going to make this up to you somehow. Trust me. Uh, and then the Gospel of Luke tells us that the labor pains began. And this is what we read in Luke 2, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So the birth was attended by a first-time father and a bunch of animals who had to share their feeding trough. The hay probably kept sticking to everything. Uh, there were no hot water compresses, no epidural for the delivery. Blood and meconium smeared everywhere. Joseph likely used a flint knife to cut the cord. And what Joseph and Mary didn't realize, and what many in the world have missed since the time, that Christmas isn't about getting it all right and having it perfect and clean and antiseptic. In fact, it's just the opposite. Christmas is about God stepping into a broken, sin-cursed, and messed-up world in an offbeat and unexpected manner to change everything. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is a messy story that's grounds for real joy. Now, if we look at the record of the events of the Christmas story in the Gospels, I, I discover three notable expressions of real joy. They're almost like explosions, as it were. The first came with the Virgin Mary's miracle. Uh, in the modern United States, where over one million teenage girls get pregnant out of wedlock every year, Mary's predicament has no, no doubt lost a great deal of its original force. But if you dial back to that closely knit Jewish community in the first century, 
the news that the angel Gabriel had brought her would not have been terribly welcome news. Because the truth is, the law under which they lived regarded a, a pregnant, engaged woman to be susceptible to death by stoning was not kind. So Luke tells us that Mary, perhaps fearing for her very life, decides to visit her relative Elizabeth, who had also become pregnant after another angelic announcement of sorts. And perhaps Mary was thinking, well, finally, here's going to be somebody that understands what I'm going through. And upon Mary's arrival, Elizabeth exclaimed, when you came in and greeted me, my baby jumped for joy the instant I heard your voice. To which Mary responds in what is now known as her Magnificat when she says, Oh, how I praise the Lord. I rejoice in God, my Savior. So Mary found great joy. The second explosion of joy and praise and excitement came with the angels in the sky and the shepherds in the field. Gospel of Luke, if we were to continue reading, says this, in beginning in verse 8. That night there were some shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you'll recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. So, here you have uh, toughened, Outdoorsmen. We, we refrain from calling them rednecks because we don't know if they had gun racks in their pickup trucks. But it was these third shift workers to whom God chose to announce his arrival on the earth. And when the angels lit up the night landscape and announced the good news of great joy, uh, the text says that they were terrified. Well, no kidding to be surprised like that. But then, after being reassured by this angelic choir that, to our knowledge, has never existed since, at least to our, our, our scene, and being uh, calmed by God's manifest presence right there, uh, they actually then became excited. And then they said to one another, come on, let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing. Let's check it out, this thing that the Lord has told us about. And so... Uh, Luke's uh, record says that they hurried off to the village and found uh, Mary and Joseph and the child. And the story concludes with these words in Luke 2:17. And after seeing him, Jesus, the baby, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angels had said to them about this child. Good news, great joy. Then the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all that they'd seen and heard. And so the angels and the shepherds found great joy. The third expression of, of joy and praise and excitement came from the wise worshipers. 
And now we're going to read in Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, these words in chapter 2. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, it was quite unlike the the blue-collar ranchers on a quiet hillside who were minding their own business when interrupted by the celestial choir. Here we see in the text that the wise men set out on a deliberate journey, an intentional journey. Verse 9 reads, After this interview with King Herod, they went their way, and the star that they'd seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was, and when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these members of a high priestly caste in the nation of Persia set out on a deliberate journey, a quest to discover and to worship the baby, the baby king. Now, to begin with, we we really don't know that there were only three. The text never says that. And unlike all the nativity sets that you've ever seen, they didn't arrive at the stable, but rather the house with his mother, probably about two years after the birth. Tradition tells us that the wise men, or the magi, as it perhaps is translated in your Bible, were wise men who studied astrology, and worshipped the elements. Uh, They interpreted dreams and omens, claimed to have the gift of prophecy, and actually represent God to man. But consider for a moment the incredible sacrifice that their journey would have meant. Um, Making the trip from what is now modern-day Iran to the Holy Land. You know, you didn't just turn on the GPS turn on your cell phone for directions, hop in the SUV with OnStar, get out on the interstate and stop at Wendy's for a hamburger, fries, and a Frosty when you got hungry. No, this journey would have, would have rivaled anything you've ever seen on the Discovery Channel in terms of a cross-country journey. Quite an expedition, actually, because these men's hearts were captured by something or someone. In fact, it was a supernatural star that that caught their attention. The text reads that when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Now, it wasn't a distant supernova, but rather some kind of light that moved in close enough proximity to actually guide them to the right house where the mother and the child were, the exact house And I just believe that they were responding to the divine surge that moved upon them to do something absolutely outlandish and that overflowed the boundaries of prudence and propriety. You see, that's what real worship does. It moves us to get beyond ourselves and do something that's lavish and and wasteful. There is no worship without sacrifice. But the wise men did that. They worshiped the king. And when they finally arrived, at their destination, they entered the house, and the text reads, they fell down, they worshipped him, and they presented their costly gifts. They found great joy. 
Now, we really don't know how much Mary or Elizabeth or the shepherds or the wise men really knew or understood at that moment. Uh, What we do know is it took the rest of the people in Galilee and Judea quite a while to figure it all out. In fact, at least another 30 years goes by. And then Jesus grew up to adulthood. We know that he left his business as a cabinet maker and a woodworker to begin an itinerant teaching ministry. And it was only then that people began to wake up to his mission. He inaugurated his preaching tour with an announcement that the kingdom of God had finally arrived. And, and, and then everywhere he went, he, he told and showed people of God's inexhaustible, never-ending love for all people everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, insiders, outsiders, up and out, down and out. He said, God loves you. And he says, no matter what you've done, No matter how bad you've been or how good you are, God loves you. And I forgive your sins. And then he just welcomed people back into relationship with the living God. And then he met needs. I mean, you take a snapshot and compile them of Jesus' ministry. He went around meeting needs, healed the sick, cured the leper, restored the lame. He gave sight to the blind, enabled those who were deaf to hear. And he even raised the dead. He fed the hungry. He encouraged the poor. He delivered those who were demonized and addicted. He brought hope to the broken. He reintegrated back into society those who had been marginalized. And that might have been at that time women or children, servants, tax collectors, prostitutes, Gentiles, and people who had been racially prejudiced or were otherwise a notorious sinner. He reintegrated them back into life. And then he taught people how to live under his rule and his reign. And then he said, this is what life in my kingdom is supposed to be like. And so in that sense, the real joy of Advent is that Jesus changes everything. You see, Christianity is not just the superior of the world's great religions. It's not the winner in the foot race between Islam and Hinduism and Judaism and Shintoism and the ancestral worship in the Eastern land. It, it, it's not just a code of morals and ethics, a system of thought and beliefs to which we as the well-intentioned subscribe, not a, not a group of people who try their best to live right and do good and go to church and manage their sin. That's not what Christianity is. That's not what Jesus came to bring. Rather, Christianity is Christ. And Jesus changes everything. With the coming of the kingdom in the first advent, this broken, sin-cursed, messed-up world got turned right side up. The power of sin and the curse was broken. Men, women, and children can now be restored into relationship with the living God. We can confidently and securely fulfill His destiny for our lives, and we get to partner with Him in setting the world to right again. That's the joy of the real Advent. Well, we declare, as we, as Jeff and Amy led us in that opening uh, carol, joy to the world, the Lord has come 
let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's the real joy of the first advent. Now, I like to think that means that Christmas can actually be a season of joy. Not because we're going to get it all perfect. It's not going to look like the Hallmark greeting cards. It's not going to be clean and antiseptic. Not because everybody's going to be happy and get it all right. Not because all of our messy and complicated circumstances are going to get all changed completely. No, because as we know, there are still two kingdoms in conflict on the earth today. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God is here. It's just not all the way here. We live now in this absolutely unique time of the overlapping of two kingdoms. And we're awaiting the full consummation of what Jesus inaugurated when he came in the first advent. And in the second advent, when he comes again, literally, physically, what we'll see is that the blessings that we experience in part by his sovereign, gracious hand, forgiveness and healing and encouragement and and deliverance and hope, those things that we taste in part will come in full when he returns when the kingdom is consummated, when that which he began comes in full. But until that time, we get to taste in part the blessings of the future age that have invaded the present in the first advent. Real hope, real joy, real love, real life. What Mary and Elizabeth and the shepherds and the wise men teach us is that the source of joy that people are really looking for is actually Jesus Christ, in the midst of our messy and complicated lives, what we really need is the joy found in Jesus who can change everything. And now he offers freely his kingdom, his never-ending, inexhaustible love, his boundless mercy, his powerful truth, his His life-changing uh, gifts and power through the Holy Spirit. He offers that freely to all people everywhere, no matter who you are or what you've done. All we have to do is turn and trust him. That's it. Doesn't matter how bad you've been or how good you are. You just turn and trust Him. And as you trust Him, Jesus can change sin and selfishness and bondage and rebellion and guilt and shame into forgiveness and new life and freedom. That's real joy. As you trust Him, Jesus can turn hurt and betrayal and broken relationships into forgiveness and restoration and release. That's real joy. As you turn and trust Him, Jesus can change sickness and disease and weakness into health and strength and soundness of mind and body. And that is real joy. As you turn and trust Him, He can He can change poverty and lack and oppression and despair into provision and security and our needs being met according to his riches and glory by Christ. That's real joy. As we turn and trust him, he can change our hopelessness and our confusion and our desperation and purposelessness into guidance and direction and a sense of hope and confident expectation of the future. And that is real joy. 
as we turn and trust him, Jesus can change our loneliness and our isolation and our fear into a confident sense of belonging because we're in his new community, the church, our family. That's real joy. Our hearts, friends, can be fully satisfied in the real joy, the real life that he offers. The Bible describes what happens when we turn and trust him this way in Psalm 126. Our mouths will be filled with laughter and our tongue with songs of joy. The prophet Isaiah foresaw the life of God's people and said of them, everlasting joy will crown their heads. And the apostle Peter proclaimed to followers of Jesus, he says, even though we don't see him, we believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. And so, friends, one of God's greatest gifts is real joy because Jesus changes everything. Lord, we're just humbled and grateful at how you turned the world right side up when you came. And it didn't happen all in an instant or in a moment, and all of our messy, complicated circumstances in life didn't turn on a dime, but you did bring the kingdom, and you now offer the hope that in you, everything can be changed. You put in our our mouth songs of joy. You crown our head with everlasting joy. And Lord, we, we can confess with saints who have gone before and those who will follow after us these declarations of inexpressible and glorious joy because of you. And we receive now, Lord, uh, your grateful word of encouragement to us. Pray that it would go down deep into the soil of our heart and our life, even this week. And Lord, we pray that you now receive these gifts that we offer to you in our offering, the sacrifices that, that we're making to respond to you with gifts of our hard-earned substance that comes from your hand anyway. And then, Lord, these songs that, uh, that you've given to gifted men and women who, who craft them, we sing them back as prayers to you. Receive them for what they are, tokens that we, we love you when we want our life to count for you. In your name, amen.